You're listening to Proropod. Welcome as we, Portia the lifelong fan and Amanda the first time reader, discover the books of Agatha Christie. We are sisters who live on opposite ends of the U.S. doing a quarantine project and who love to be soothed by British murder mysteries. In this shithole of a moment in history, it's nice to have Poirot or Miss Marple solve it all. Hello, welcome to Poiropod. Poiropod. See, I did it better that time. You did. Your French is getting better. Oops, my technical skills are not getting better. <laughs> Pronunciation of the hero of your favorite book after 100 years is getting better. <laughs> hey, he's not in the man in the brown suit, so. Okay. Who is it? So, it, um, and when it comes to that, when it comes, are you team Paro or are you team Marple? Um, I think I'm team Marple and we haven't read a Marple yet together. So I know I keep skipping ahead and I just I was getting the ones on Audible that come as like a BOGO just because like you know it seems right. like you're getting more because I was getting the ones from the library that are free but then I was getting after there's enough of those or I'm waiting on hold I was getting some of the ones on Audible and I just read four in a row that have no none of our detectives in it and oh, I was yeah. like you know they're not they're not spy novels they're like mysteries but like none of the you know n- neither Paro or Marple's in them and I'm like what's happening <laughs> yeah so yeah i need to stop and but it's like arbitrary order just because it was like whichever ones were in a a two for one on on audible okay so back to this one we are talking about the murder of roger Ackroyd. we last week we did chimneys and uh this was published in 1926 and apparently it was serialized in a magazine in 25 um but it was so up to the sixth book and, and this was, is um, Hercule Poirot one. Yeah, and it's supposed to be after Hastings has married Cinderella and moved to Argentina, right? Or, as they say, the Argentine. The Argentine. Um, and, and yeah, and and then so he's he's retired to a small town, and it's not it's told from the point of view of his next door neighbor. Right. Who um, is a doctor? What's his name? James Shepard. Dr. Shepard. And so, uh, spoiler this is the unreliable narrators of all unreliable narrators. I know. And it was so funny because we had an unreliable narrator in The Man in the Brown Suit. No, wait. Is this the one? Yeah. Um, yeah. But it was like from a memoir, so I was like, okay, he wasn't really a memoir. But this was the actual narrator, first person, and he still lied to us. And I was like, okay, so now I've just learned never to trust narrators from you. <laughs> right. When I was like trying to figure out who it was, I like asked myself the question, and I said, self, <laughs> self, <laughs> you know who? Are, and I like you consider it, and you're like, she wouldn't do the narrator again. Well, and of course, in the man in the brown suit, he was like the master spy, not just the murderer. And he was um, uh, only half of the narration. Right. But this one was straight up told from his point of view. Yeah. And it's so interesting when you go back and you read it again and you see the points where 
he does omit or he says like I was nervous talking to the detective and now you understand why he said it or I you know was nervous because I saw the stepson talking right to Mrs. right Sparrow. and he's yeah or he's very specific with his language about what he did when he's lying to other people um, right he was like i told them the same story i wrote down exactly before. right and you're like uh-huh and he, he does that multiple times where he's like i've repeated to the same story that i've yeah recounted here not the truth right but so when you go back you can see how like she is kind of dropping those clues for you but so it, what's interesting and what i really think is great is that this is much more what agatha christie is known for than the spy novel because it's a small town Everybody knows each other. Um, the butler is a suspect. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? Like, this is more of, like, the kind of um, murder mystery that she was known for. But, you know, having the narrator turn out to be the murderer is, you know, an interesting thing. Because, But before we get there, we have... A rich woman who committed suicide. Right. So the setup we know at the beginning of the book is that there is a a woman whose husband died a year ago. And then everyone thinks she's going to remarry Roger Ackroyd, who, you know, of the title. And so a year after her husband's death, she overdoses. And people are like, is it suicide? Was she killed? You know, what happened? Or was it an accident? Mm-hmm. And then our, our doctor narrator goes to visit Roger Ackroyd and Roger Ackroyd saying um, that turns out the woman had killed her husband and confessed to Roger that she was basically like, like let's be together. I'm going to kill my husband. Or no, she, did, she didn't tell him, but she killed her husband so that she could be with Roger. And, but after a year later, she's just confessed that. And he was like, um... That's kind of a deal breaker for me. Right. You but killing husbands is like not as hot as I thought it would be. So and then she was like, and oh no, so I thought good. you'd think it was awesome. And then she killed herself. Well, and I don't think it's that true. That because I think that um she killed her husband because he was a horrible drunk person. Okay. She was miserable, and everybody talked about that. That her husband was a horrible. Drunk oh, that's right. And like, and hadn't Ro- Roger's wife also been a horrible drunk person? They both lost a spouse because right. of that. So they kind of like everyone thought it was like meant to be that they'd be together for that. And so it was interesting because when Doctor Shepard, our unreliable narrator, says, you know, they were brought together by having this horrible bad experience before. So everybody thought that there would be wedding bells coming up and knowing that later, it turns out that he was the blackmailer who was making Mrs. Ferrer's suffer. And he's like, Oh, we all thought a wedding was coming, but now it's sad, you know, sad. And I was like, you're the dude who did it, you know, I don't know. And maybe it's just like, um, my sympathies with the wife who was living with the horrible drunk i had some oh yeah Uh, i guess so so i was like really dude you're like oh they were gonna get married but mm -hmm," you know but he's also a killer so i feel like you should be annoyed with his reaction i know know. i'm not saying that she yeah but she might have thought she had no other options but then 
Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. And we know because he's a doctor, so he was the one who was able to tell that the husband was actually murdered instead of accidentally killed. And so, but like, instead of going to the police with it, what he did was just blackmail her. And then she was wanted to tell Roger, she was like, my life is hell. I've been blackmailed. And he both cared about her, but was repulsed by what she did. And then, um, so she killed herself. And then he was saying, I think she's going to communicate me- with me. Right, about- so Roger, no, the doctor, Dr. Shepard, is over there visiting Roger Eckroyd. And he's like, I think I'm going to hear from her. And then right when that happens, the butler brings in a letter in her handwriting. Right. And then she, um, uh, doctor says, don't read it. And he was, or he says, read it now. And he goes, no, I'm not gonna. And then comes the first point where the doctor goes, the letter came at 20 minutes to nine and I left at 10 minutes to nine. And then the next part where he goes, I left and I got to the gate of the estate at nine. So there's like 20 minutes on a Right, and he does tell us that if you start to pay attention. Um, but, you know, um, the rest of the story is just f- distractions from the fact that that's it. That's all you really need. <laughs> yeah, right? it happened like, right there. <laughs> but, but there's all these other... Um, people who are lying in some way and so it distracts from because he, he tried to set up the victim's stepson for the murder but then there's all these other people that are tailing a little lie, lie in some way and so right. um, so the patsy that the doctor set up was the doctor uh, was the rich guy's stepson who he'd brought up since he was a little kid and then um, and his mom the one who was also um, a, not a drunk person who made Roger's life not good um, had died when the boy was fairly young. Right. So he'd raised him all this time and he's kind of been like a rich kid running around doing whatever he wants, asking stepdad for more money a lot. So he's like, every, he's very charming, but everyone also kind of thinks he's not that responsible. And right. he's the one that, right. that the narrator sets up to look guilty because he like takes his shoes and makes footprints and Right. And then um, there was the dead guy's brother's widow. Right. So in his household, he's got servants and then he's got his brother, like you said, his brother's widow and her daughter. So no blood there. But I guess it's his niece and her mother basically, who have been living yeah, with and him. And then he's got a housekeeper who's totally jealous of that woman because this housekeeper was trying to hopefully marry him marry. as well. And so there's all these w- women that were the trying but- to get in with him. The butler, who is just shifty. And then the parlor maid, who is apparently, like, uppity. It's again, like, this, like, um, who's the the levels of class were interesting because um later when we get to know the parlor maid and then they were like why are you working as a parlor maid you are clearly high, you know like higher up than that right you know there's right right yeah when it comes to the class things and she's the one that ends up to be the secret wife of of the of the stepson, stepson right yeah, and then the other 
Um, oh, we should give some people some names. So Do- Dr. James Shepard is the unreliable narrator and the murderer. Roger Ackroyd Ak- is clearly the guy who dies because it's titled The Murderer. <laughs> Mrs. Ferrars, we never meet because she was dead at the beginning. Right. She, yeah, we, we, um, she fixes it at the beginning, but yeah, we, we never actually meet her. Um, I don't even know what the name of Mrs. Ackroyd widow, her first name is. Uh, Flora is her daughter. Yeah. So yeah, we've got Mrs. Ackroyd and, and Flora. Ackroyd. Um, Ralph Patton, who is his stepson. Right. So he's the one that like is very suspected very much from the beginning as well as the butler. But of course, like Praro always says, like the one that there's like a hundred clues against is probably not the murderer. <laughs> Right. So Prowl never really um, buys it. They have a visitor who's a guy named Major Hector Blunt, who is a big game hunter because apparently she has to throw in kind of that Colonel Melrose or the, you know, the I go and travel. And yeah, there's always a, per- a character like yeah. that in every book. Um, yeah. And then there's Jeffrey Raymond, who's his secretary, who's who I kept thinking was the murderer. I right. kept suspecting him. Um, I don't know why, but just because he was around and like he was just so nonchalant, and I was like, he sounds killy. Um, <laughs> he's so killy, right? Then we got the servants, which is Parker, and Parker's the and one who the, the police suspect from the beginning, just because he was around, and they right. find his affect to be suspicious, even though he's really just probably just doing the stoic thing. Well, and apparently he did blackmail an old uh, a, a person. In oh, the back that's of the- right. He did turn out to be a blackmailer. So, like, it's 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 valid. The housekeeper, who everybody would thought was going to try to marry Roger Ackroyd, Mrs. Russell. Yeah. So she and the and the his brother's widow are kind of like turfing off in the house constantly. And she turns out has has a secret, which is a. The legitimate son who then um turns out to be a drug addict and she was considering killing him <laughs> because he's a drug addict <laughs> well she was trying to figure out because she was like are there him. drugs that can fix it and if not how can i secretly kill him then <laughs> <laughs> there's the parlor maid and her name is ursula born um and she and ralph Patton fell in love and got married secretly Meanwhile, Ralph is engaged to the niece. So the stepson, it sounds yeah. incestuous, but there's no blood there. There's also, they're like, in so a lot weird. of these books, incest is fine. Like, you know, when first cousin <laughs> love is fine. Um, and they only met each other two years ago because it's not like they grew up together. Right. So it's the stepson um, of, of the, the, the dead guy and his brother's and kid. And both Roger and... Floor, so um, Roger, the stepdad, and Mrs. Ackroyd, the mom of Flora, are like, you guys should get together. That would solve everybody's problems. Right. And they are like, okay. okay. All right. But- um, and then, um, oh, Mrs. Russell. Uh, oh, yeah. So, but but he, but Ralph had already married Ursula. Right. And was trying to figure out how to tell his dad. Um, and then Flora was not really into um, not, Ralph. Not at all. And then, um, so we also have um, Mrs. Russell's son shows up that same night because apparently they were just popping in and out of the summer house willy-nilly all night. Right. 
Um, and then, um, um, and then the Dr. Shepard's sister, who apparently is, like, is an incredible gossip who knows everything except for, of course, right? She figures out everything and she's like the gossip of the town, but like she doesn't figure out that her brother is like the killer, the murderer. Yeah. yeah. So, um, anyway, so those are the characters. Um, and oh, and then Hikro Poirot, who actually doesn't enter um, the, the story for a while because we meet all those other characters and he is unknown person who lives next door who's just retired to this town. And the narrator after, thinks he's a retired hairdresser because he's so foppish, as it were. <laughs> yeah. And um, so after the murder and they call the cops, then um, Flora says we've got to bring in this guy he's a detective and they figure out who he was right and again when you when you go back you can see how reluctant dr shepherd is to bring him in on the case he keeps being like do you think this is a good idea and like once you know he's the killer he completely sounds guilty when he's having those conversations but at the first reading you're just thinking that he's just you know for whatever reason doesn't want to do it and what's really interesting is that Flora doesn't love Ralph, but she knows he's suspected because he wasn't, he was in town, but he wasn't staying with his uncle. So there's all these guiltiness before we even find out even more. Um, but, you know, he'd always been wild and he owed some money and he was trying to get stuff from his uncle. And, but even though she didn't um, love him, she was like, okay, I said I'm engaged, so I... I know, she's very loyal. She was like, I don't want to look like an asshole who was like, well, now you're in trouble, so I'm out, you know? Right. So it's kind of funny because she's like more loyal than she should have been. Right, Because right. she totally. didn't love him. Right. So she's the one who calls in Perot, and then he pisses off some of the local cops, and then doesn't piss off others you know like some people know him they never did call in scotland yard it's right. pretty local um so those are the characters and then all the other side stories were kind of so we said once you know about mrs ferrers roger Ackroyd, and dr shepherd that's all you really need to know right um but um then we have all these side stories and everyone had a little bit of a secret because like the niece had snuck up and stole some money from his right. room so she pretended to have talked to him after he was already dead Parker. just because she didn't want to look like she was sneaking around in his like stealing stuff and so like that lie totally changed right when the time was... of death which right. she didn't lie about that to change the time and and Prava points that out from the beginning she he's like everyone in here is lying to me and they all like look down so he understands that there's a bunch of little lies that are confusing the case even though not all of them most of them don't relate to the case yeah so her that was her lie um mrs russell's son showed up wants money from his mom so they met in the summer house yeah he sounds terrible i mean i guess she also abandoned him and- right but like well, yeah, he just like shows up and just wants money and he seems very threatening. Yeah, how you know, how we feel about um how people are treated who have um illegitimate um uh 
kids, you know, like, so she abandoned him. Uh, yeah. So. And he's been in Canada, you know, with all those bad Canadian influences. That's a joke. Yeah. I love Canada. Um, then, um, and then also in the summer house, Ursula and Ralph met and they were really pissed because um, she was like, you're supposed to tell your dad we're married, but instead he, uh, he announces that you're engaged to your cousin. Right, and that kind of caught her off guard because she did yes. not know that that was coming. So I was like, wait, we're we're coming here. I'm a servant in the house. We're secret married, but then you're going to be like, ha-ha, I'm this engaged. is actually my wife. Right. And, and then he did not do that. He said he got engaged to the niece he was supposed to get engaged to. Right, yeah. So um, He so sounds she, kind of like a punk, like just yeah. sort of like conflict-averse and... Yeah, conflict-averse, yeah, totally. So um so then the side stories of yeah the canadian um son who shows up the so he's he's secret... someone that comes in as the murderer is leaving and so he and he comes in with like his collar up and he's covered up face and speaking with an accent and so he's this mysterious stranger that you're not sure if it's real but he sounds super shady and no one knows who he is right and then what other side stories um Parker, who was apparently was like heard um, Dr. Shepard and Roger Ackroyd talking about um, um, blackmail and was like, ooh, I've done that before. I want to get on in on that action. So like he keeps trying to go to Roger Ackroyd's study. Uh, so that's a side story. Right, um, right, right. So he is shady, but he's not killy. Right. Um, so but I got to say, the murder was brilliant. So this is what he did. So first of all, he went prepared to do it, probably because Mrs. Ferrers killed herself and hadn't left a note. He was like, "Uh oh, oh, okay, that makes sense to me, because I was kind of wondering, like, why he had the medical bag with him. But he's like, okay, she killed herself. This is her boo. She probably is going to have told him. So he goes over there prepared to do it. That makes more sense to me. I hadn't figured that part out. Right. And so what he had done... Um, and Poirot figures this out is that um, Roger Ackroyd had bought a dictaphone and for you youngins out there it's basically a recording device so that he could record memos that his secretary could then type up 1920s for voice memo yeah voice exactly so but it was like is it like that kind with like the little dog that's looking at it you know what I'm talking about like is that a that's a gramophone I, but it probably looks like that. A dictaphone? I don't know. We'd have to look up a picture of that. Um, like, you know that picture of that's like that old RCA symbol that's like yeah. a little dog looking into a, a cone? Yeah. It's like, that's what I was picturing without the dog. Um, so yeah, so yeah, keep going because yeah. you were explaining that well. So, I'll look yeah, up the so, picture. So yeah, I looked up the picture of a dictaphone. Um, anyway, so he buys a dictaphone um, and then he used it and it wasn't working very well, but he had recorded his voice on it. And he gave it to Dr. Shepard because he was a tinkerer who had a back um, garage where he liked to tinker with alarm trucks and stuff. It was like something he did on the side. So he was like, oh, I'll fix the dictaphone for you. So what he actually did was put a timer on the dictaphone so it would start up playing what Roger Ackroyd had um, recorded. Now, why did he do that? so that he could give himself an alibi because what he did was he killed Roger Ackroyd. He left 
And then he had a timer set for like a half an hour later for the dictaphone to go off. And here you hear Roger Ackroyd's voice and two different people heard him talking in right. the study. So they were like, yeah, he was totally alive at 9.30. Right. Even though he'd actually been killed at like quarter to nine. Yeah. And um, then this is so much planning ahead by Dr. Shepard. He had a patient who was leaving to go on a ship or a plane or something yeah. like overseas and was leaving town. So he said, tonight on your way out at like 1030 or something, um, could you call me and tell me something? It was some kind of innocuous message. Mm-hmm. And so that person called at 1030. And so called Dr. Shepard. But Dr. Shepard said, what's that? To the audience of his sister who he lives right. with. Right. Roger Ackroyd's been murdered. What? I'll come over immediately. And then he rushed over to Roger Ackroyd's house. And at the house, nobody knew what he was talking about because everybody thought Roger Ackroyd was still in his study. Everybody else was. And, and when he'd left after killing him, he was like, he does not want to be disturbed tonight. It's not mm -hmm. that I killed him at all. He just, he's real busy. He's got a lot of right. stuff to do. He's totally alive, totally alive, but just don't talk to him. Right. And so he shows up and the butler's like, what are you talking about? Everything's fine. He's like, I have to go in. I have to go in. And at first you're like, oh, you're just really worried about your friend. But the reason why he had to go in, he had to be the one to discover the body. Why? So he could hide the gramophone. Hide the dictaphone. Dictaphone. Uh, dictaphone. Um, and so he had to go in. And what he had done is move a chair so it kind of blocked the view when you first came in of a little table so that you didn't know that the dictaphone was there. And then he tucked it into his medical bag. And then um, he, um, so he was the first person there. So like, because he broke in with the, and then as soon as like they broke in and saw he was dead, he's like, Parker, go call the cops. And yeah. As soon as Parker leaves. That gives him time to hide the dictaphone, gramophone, dictaphone. Dictaphone, dictaphone. <laughs> and then he puts, you know, the chair back and he's like, boom. He'd create an alibi for himself. Now, what he didn't even realize is that at a quarter to 10 um, is when Flora went up to um, steal some money from her uncle's bedroom. And the stairs were right by the study. And she came back down the stairs and Parker came towards the study. And she was like, rushed down to the door and said he doesn't want to be disturbed because then she's like that's what i was doing i was talking i wasn't to in his bedroom stealing his money i was just in a study talking to him so she totally made up this encounter with him at quarter to ten saying that she just talked to him right so she supplied she shifted the time of death even later more than the murderer had intended just right. because she was covering her own ass and then she he's like great that makes it even less likely it was me um and so that way of giving himself an alibi, but then of course that phone call that he had to have so he could be the first person there 
is like, why was that phone call made? And here Coral Poirot kept asking, like, why would they make that phone call? Yeah, he kept pointing out Poirot from the beginning was like, that's the key to the case is that phone call. Right. So, um, so because it turns out. And the police were able to trace it to the train station. So again, they're thinking it's that um, the stepson. They're like, okay, he was, for some reason he did that. And you know, there's really no motivation for why he would do that, but there was some reason for it. So he did that and they took a train out of town because they still can't find a stepson at this point. And, you know, it's interesting because Dr. Shepard, because he's the doctor of a small town in England, you know, he has this like, oh, he's the doctor who lives with his sister and he's just a nice guy. Um, you wouldn't think of a small town doctor as being the murderer. And... Uh, and then he and the other thing that he was sneaky about is that after the um, was it after the body was discovered, he went over to the stepsons to Ralph's hotel room. Mm-hmm. Or was it the next day? Was it right away? No, he went right after because that's why he got because he got he must have people interpreted it as him because he was actually close to the family. He was close to the stepson. He was like one of the few people he trusted. So it kind of was super terrible that he set him up, but people interpreted it as him checking on him to make sure, you know, he was okay. But really, cause yeah, cause because he was in, he was not telling his father he was in town. So he was staying at a hotel, even though he was in town, he didn't stay with his stepfather. So the murderer goes down there to his hotel and actually skills his shoes to make all these fake footprints when he goes back to like, cause he goes back to the place and sets up the evidence. Right. right. No, I think, cause remember this is where that time discrepancy comes in. Right. So the letter was delivered at 10 minutes to nine. He left a uh, 20 minutes to nine. He mm-hmm. left the room at 10 minutes to nine. So that's when he stabbed Roger, put the dictaphone and put the timer. Then he gets his coats and he leaves the house, but he doesn't get to the street until nine. Oh, so he probably already had the shoes with him then. Right. So he had definitely gone to Ralph's hotel room, stolen some shoes, puts them on, and then makes uh, footprints going to the window of Roger's study and then coming out. Right, And then he walks to the street. So that counts for that time. But then he goes um, when, after the body was officially discovered, he goes back to the hotel room and puts the shoes back. But then he also finds Ralph and says, you're in danger. I'm trying to help you. Let's hide you so you're not arrested. Which... Ralph is like, oh, that's so sweet of you, family doctor. Right, and like, yeah, and and he's he's like, he's always liked the doctor. They've kind of been close, so he trusts him. He's one of the few people in this town because you know the kid's kind of a rebel and all these things. But the doctor's always been kind to him, so he he trusts him more than most people in the town. So then he, you know, he was like, you're right. I'll go hide. Um, and he hid him close by in a close by town in a mental hospital right right because he's a doctor so he can check someone in as a as a mental patient and um but ralph did it willingly it's not like he was dragged there and then um 
but the fact that Ralph doesn't appear um, for such a long time. Yeah, for most of the book. Um, makes everybody think he's guilty, which right. of course is what the doctor had in mind. And then the doctor didn't even know all of the things that made him look guilty, like the secret marriage. And so his wife shows up at the doctor's house and starts crying and is like, you know, he's got to come. And, you know, the last time we saw each other, we were yelling at each other because he wasn't telling his um, uncle uh, or his stepdad, stepdad, um, not uncle, that, um, <coughs> that we were married and, um, so there was all these other things that made it look like Ralph was guilty, even more than Dr. yeah, Ralph even then with the more Ralph. than the doctor knew, yeah. Um, and then also- the 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 maid who was the secret wife had also like been fired that same night, so there was something weird there because he was she was he was she said I messed up the papers on his desk and he fired me, and I was like, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But it turns out that she was actually went down and was like, look. Your stepson's married to me. Deal with it. And he was like, yeah. Get out of here. Yeah, and he was like, you're fired. So um, so then um, let's see. Uh, yeah, so the other side story that I was going to mention is the, you know, the game hunter who's staying there just for no reason and Flora were actually falling in love. But Definitely. He was being strong, silent, I don't share my feelings. Plus, you're engaged to another man. And Flora was being, I have to be loyal to this other guy because... Yeah, she really was. So, um, so but then Hercule Poirot had to do his side business of matchmaking. Of like, you know, actually, you guys are in love with each other, so stop it. You know. Yeah, he definitely did that. That was definitely a goal. So yeah, you see that with all of the it's a it's a consistent theme where it's like also love. Right. So um anyway, you know, it's interesting because there's two times that Perot sits down with all of the witness all of the um suspects. Mm-hmm. And the first time he says, I know all of you are lying about something. And then um, after he kind of does some interviews, he does that first scene of like, I know all all of you are lying about something. And then um, we start to gradually find out about what some of these lies are. Mm -hmm. And then he does it again, where he calls everyone to the house. He reveals that he's found Ralph. Mm -hmm. And Ralph tells his story that he came and talked to his wife. They yelled at each other, but he went back home but he didn't have an alibi. And Perot says to the assembled crowd, hey, if you don't confess, I will go and tell on you because I'm not going to let this innocent man... Right. I'm going to reveal all your secrets if you don't reveal them to me. Right. And so he announces it to the whole group. But of course, usually at that moment in most murder mystery stories is when somebody goes aha it's you dun 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 and then right you were looking for that in that moment yeah in front of everybody but it didn't happen in front of everybody and i was kind of thinking during that scene i was like well if i have this secret 
that I have been lying about. I'm not going to say it in front of everybody. Like, I might come to you separately, Mr. Proro, but I'm not going to say it in front of everybody. Right. Well, in both instances, right? Like, both the I have a secret one, but also the second one where he's like, if you did it, you better admit it now. Right. Yeah, he did do that. Um, so what's interesting, yeah, there wasn't a, like, big reveal in front of everybody moment. He just says, you better... Um, tell or I'm going to tell the cops to save Ralph's life. Right. And then he has this moment where he's like, oh, Dr. Shepard, stick around. Why don't you have a drink with me? And then he tells Dr. Shepard... And it, we, we didn't actually mention that the the setup for the whole relationship between Dr. Shepard and Poirot, he's, he keeps saying, you remind me of Hastings, you're kind of an right. idiot, he's kind of an idiot, you right. think I'm, you know have a big ego like he keeps referring to him like oh you remind me of my friend Hastings so you sort of accept him as for some reason a Hastings fill-in like he's like right he's he's very Hastings X and they even make like a um you know Sherlock and Watson reference and so like you're, you're just sort of accepting him like that but Poirot's accepting him into this Hastings role right and so that's why it makes sense for him to be like oh because he sends him to he sends him to like be part of the investigation and he and then yeah so that that moment when he's like stay and have a drink with me you think he's gonna give a big reveal to him as like a co-investigator or his sidekick right and um dr shepherd kept a chronicle which is why it was when as an unreliable narrator it wasn't just a story we know that dr shepherd wrote this down because right. you know Perot was like, oh, I remember how Hastings wrote down all my stories. And Dr. Shepard's like, well, actually, I heard about those stories. So I wrote it, too. You want to read it? Right. And then Perot read it and said, yeah, it's good job, except for you never talk about you. Mm-hmm. Which is very different from Hastings. And it's true, because Hastings would always be like, I did this and I did that. And, blah, 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 and I thought this. Yeah, yeah. So, um. And so Pororo mentions that from the get-go. So um, they set it up. And so that's an interesting setup of kind of like, this is a Hastings like fill-in. So it's another reason. And another reason that you don't see him coming as. Right. That you trust him. As the bad guy. Because you're like, oh yeah, he's a Hastings fill-in. Right. Um, So, uh, but then, you know, the end of the story, he's like, I you know, da 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 clearly you. And Dr. Shepard spends some time going, oh, you're so wrong, you're so wrong. Oh, okay. You know, like... Yeah, he's, yeah, he's like, all right, fine. So, but then the wild thing is that basically Claro convinces him to kill himself. He's like, your sister doesn't want to have to go through a trial or know that you're the murderer, so why don't you just kill yourself? And I, I like I was like, whoa, that's big for you to be like instead of like you should face justice, you should kill yourself, right? And then to to somehow think that like him killing himself and telling some sort of spinning it as some sort of I don't understand how this very nosy sister who's very interested in all these different things is all of a sudden gonna be like, Oh, now we don't care who killed Roger Ackroyd. No one killed Roger Ackroyd. We don't care about that anymore. Also, in a, in additional news, my, hu- my my husband, my brother killed himself, unrelated. 
Like, I don't understand. She's not stupid. She's going to know he killed himself because he was the murderer. And so, like, why not just let him stand trial? Like, I didn't understand, like, why Bravo basically talked him into killing himself. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. I think it's a little bit um, because of trial is very public and very, you know, like every. Well, not if you plead guilty. True. True. You don't have to go through a trial if you're guilty. I mean, like, you don't have to just kill yourself. You could be like, I don't need a trial because I did it. Put me in jail. Yeah. I mean, I don't. You know, now that we've been reading quite a few of these, this goes to the question about the British culture, which is such an interesting thing to talk about because I've never been there. Yeah. And it's like in so many things that you read, and especially, you know, things that have a Catholic background, not that we do, but like culturally things like that, like, suicide is considered very bad and in like a climax you might want to stop the person from killing themselves who's the murderer and you want them to face justice so the fact that our hero you know Paro is like kill yourself dude just come on just take yourself out it's better and and, and the doctor's like cool sounds good <laughs> yeah <laughs> just and, like what and yeah because uh, the doctor never considered killing Paro which is interesting he's like yeah I'm not stupid and it was like Okay, that's interesting. Um, yeah. Because uh, he'd already murdered and set up somebody and, you know, clearly blackmailed for a year. and um, Right. So, uh, oh, that was the other thing that made him in common with Hastings is that the money he had gotten from Mrs. Fur, he had wasted in bad speculations. Um, right. Uh, which reminded Paro Hastings, too. So, so. You were a blackmailer and you got 20,000 pounds, which is a lot. And then you lose it by investing in stupid investing. Stupid stuff. So uh, anyway, so yeah, and that was what he said. If he just blackmailed her once and left it, everyone would have, nobody would have known because she wouldn't have told Roger. She wouldn't have killed herself. Nothing would have happened. Right. But yeah, no, but he kept, he kept kind of asking for more because he'd wasted what he'd gotten from her at first. Right. So I guess the moral of that story is if you're going to blackmail, only do it a little bit. Only, you know, be my, my, you know, moderation is, is great in all things, including blackmail. Only a little bit. But like, yeah, the fact that like the, I don't know. Yeah, the, the encouraging him to kill himself, and I was like, "Your sister's not stupid." First of all, the police aren't going to be like, "Well, I guess nobody killed Roger Ackroyd." But their their official record will be that the doctor did it because there's no other. I mean, they have to clear everybody else; otherwise, everyone else will stand under suspicion. So they have to say, "Well, you know, the doctor seems to have done it." Otherwise, there's always going to be a shadow of everyone else. And they're like, "And your sister's not stupid. She's a complete snoop. She's a gossip. She's going to put two and two together." But I also think that um, knowing that your brother was a murderer who killed himself or him having a brother who's confessed and locked up or been on trial and locked up, I guess Poro, I'm just, you know, I'm not necessarily justifying, but I'm saying like that would be less painful to have you dead than to have you in prison. Right. Um. I mean, yeah, that's what that's what probably. But the, the sister didn't come off as extremely fragile or anything, so it was just so interesting that he, right, that was important to Pravo in this in this case, you know. Yeah, so I guess it's an interesting thing about like what is the right thing to do at that point because 
uh, yeah, Paro clearly was like, you are just, you know, we've, you've done it. You, it, you're, you're, you, you go away now. <laughs> yeah. Which again, like, I'm not, I'm not saying that's good or bad. It was just interesting. I've never seen a detective be like, don't make me arrest you. Kill yourself. Right. Right. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, this is new. Like the morality, I just, it was just, it was just new to me. So I was like, okay. Well, and he says uh, at the very end, my greatest fear through all through this, this is when he stops being an unreliable narrator. My greatest fear through all this has been Caroline. I have fancied she might guess. Curious the way she spoke that day of my strain of weakness. Well, she will never know the truth. There is, as Perot said, one way out. I can trust him. He and Inspector Raglan will arrange it between them. I should not like Carolyn to know. She was fond of me, and then, too, she is proud. My death will be a grief to her, but grief pass- passes. So he thinks that somehow they're going to figure out to blame somebody else so that she will never know. And she could just be sad. So maybe it's just, it's a cover-up. It's a cover-up. It just, it, it didn't seem like a big reason for a cover-up for me. But again, I'm, not, I'm not, I just, it was such an interesting choice. Yeah, and it's um, another thing that's, you know, now that we're kind of on that, we did the plot and we talked about the characters, but the themes. She doesn't do a lot of the themes we've been talking about here. The role of women, yeah, there isn't a lot of stuff about men and women necessarily. Like no, it was, also, it was less women empowery. Yeah, I mean, Caroline was. She kept he kept talking about how much she knew all of this information, but never left the house. Um, and so she knew because of people coming visiting and stuff like that. Um, yeah, the narrator was a man, and Poirot is a man, and there's not yeah, there's very little about this like young women in their twenties who in their new flashy ways. Right. Or even compared to Chimneys, which was less of that, you know, like young energy, but I really liked because it was just so like funny and, you know, dynamic and stuff. And to me, this was a very traditional murder mystery, except for the fact that the the narrator was the murderer. But it felt very traditional. And it was back to being kind of sad. Yeah, it was it was melancholy. The whole thing was melancholy. Like, I felt like there was no winners in this. No winners. I mean, and it was so weird because, like, coming off of chimneys, which was such like super fun, and even like you know, there was spy stuff, and there were, even though there was murder and stuff, it was upbeat and really energetic. And this one was definitely like sad and melancholy, which, like, you were bringing up. This was, from what we understand, the end of her marriage, so she may have just been in a darker place and wrote a more melancholy book because it, the, the mood of it compared to the very previous book was really surprising yeah because like so what year was this one this is 26 26 and her um when he asked for a divorce her husband agatha christie's husband asked for the divorce was like august of 26 and then she did her disappearance so it was like so this was literally that so she probably writing it in 25 and like Mm -hmm. things are falling apart we've been through that right and then like by the time he asked for the divorce things are already a hot mess right so or he's been cheating all this time or there's this other woman in the wings or whatever it is so by yeah so but this is probably why she's writing this it was like in the dark days yeah and she did put you know two 
sort of evil characters with alcohol. And so we don't know if that was involved with her divorce either because right. she had, she definitely had like two marriages ruined by alcohol. Right. And that was the, the, the other melancholy thing is like Dr. Shepard at the beginning talked about how after so much sadness with their first marriages, maybe they can get married to each other. Oh no, they both died instead. <laughs> right. It's really sad. It's just sad. I mean, but I guess at the end, you know, the stepson does get to be with his wife if she's not too pissed at him. And, you know, the niece gets to be with this big game hunter dude. Yeah. So there's still a little bit, but they don't focus on that. Like all the other books, they sort of have this like murder's odor over here's the happy ending of all the love. But like they did not focus on that at the end of this one. You, it's sort of implied that those two couples will get together. Those two young younger couples will get together um but it's not focused on there's not the happily ever after scene that there is in the other books right right so it's yeah so i realized that um when i read it um reread it you know that unlike some of the other ones that we've read as part of this i haven't reread this one as much i, remember, I wouldn't either yeah i rem i remembered you know the he did it um so yeah like when i went back to reread it because i read it once then you know like it's after the kaiser sose moment you want to go back and see how you missed it you know so i was going back for that reason um just to see like okay yeah that's where he said i spent 10 more minutes and when i left i made sure that i hadn't left anything undone you can see the little language that he drops in to give us hints of the truth so i like finding that but it's definitely not a fun reread. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's funny because it's like, unlike Man in the Brown Suit or Secret of Chimneys or a lot of the ones that we've done recently, where I was like, oh, I've read this a bunch of times, you know. Mm -hmm. I can see why, yeah, you haven't gone back and read this one. Uh, this one, I've probably only reread a couple of times. And so when I reread it, I was like, oh, I forgot about that. I forgot about that. Um, but I think it's because it's kind of like sad, yeah, yeah, it is. It's like, ah, you know, and then, you know, I don't, you don't want the small town family doctor to turn out to be a blackmailing murderer, you know? Like, yeah, it's, it's pretty creepy. It's pretty. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's not. Yeah, you don't get a lot. It doesn't. I mean, so, it's, it's it's well written and everything. Oh, it's totally um, well written. It's a surprise. Um, it definitely feels like more what Agatha Christie is known for now when people mention an Agatha Christie. Yeah, it feels like the formula we know of her. Like, because she doesn't usually talk about urban murders. She talks about small towns where everybody knows each other and, you know, uh, there's only a few suspects and there's a manor house and there's a butler. So it has all of that. What makes it interesting, of course, is the fact that the narrator turns out to be the murderer. But, um, but yeah, like, oh, I want to read a romp, a fun romp. This yeah. is not it. Um, yeah. It's, it's not the fun British murder that I like. Yeah. It's, <laughs> that know, I find soothing. It's more yeah, of a melancholy it's not British murder. It's soothing, no. Um, because sometimes, I, and I... Yeah, and even that at the end when Prowl's like, so kill yourself, dude. Like, that's like a weird, like, okay, like that's... It, you know that that it was almost like in something in a minor key i right. can see how it's the right key 
but it still hits me in a place it's just like this makes me uncomfortable like the fact that like my hero who was like so kill yourself dude i figured it out kill yourself like this is our big resolution this is how this is this is the right answer like it's just in a minor key in a way that you know you're just like oh yeah that was that was dark that was dark it was just dark and sad and so and then what we were really enjoying about like um, and kind of like you said, he didn't even as a sorry, I just cut you off. I just got excited because like okay. as a blackmailer, he didn't even enjoy the thing. Like he, so a year ago, he starts black. He got a blackmail payment from this rich lady, and he just wasted it on a bad investment and kept living as it. And he kept talking to Praro about how, oh, I got a, I came into some money and I was going to travel, but I never did. So he basically wasted his blackmail money on poor investments, and just kept living as a small town doctor. Like if he blackmailed her and then like got around the world or something it would have been more exciting but like he was a boring criminal too like he just got her money and then invested it poorly and then never went that was it never did never did anything he never did anything. it was like disappointing even as a criminal like you want your criminals to be excellent and interesting right right so um yeah so i think what's as we've talked about she likes to invent the genre or and then reinvent it so mm-hmm. having the narrator be the murderer is a great reinvention of the uh, British murder mystery genre, just like as we talked about, and then we're none and murder on the Orient Express, take the same genre and then mess with it, you know? Yeah. And that's what I did find interesting about it. Like, even though it was melancholy, it was still really good because... And again, considering this is 1926, it's this, you know, pre-usual suspects and all the things where we're looking for the twist. Like, you're just not looking for the right. murderer to, to be the narrator, even though she'd done that in The Man in the Brown Suit, where it was like, you know, he was the criminal mastermind or one of the narrators was. Right. But in the formula of a murder mystery, you're just not looking for it, especially with him being so Hastings-esque. Right. And so that was a really, like, it was still very clever. And then, yeah, because when we talked about chimneys, the unreliable narrator turned out to be even more romantic hero than he seemed. So, like, right. having the unreliability be negative as opposed to, I'm secretly a prince. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Like, in, you know. So, oh, and I was going to say that often uh, murder mysteries make you feel satisfied because at the end, all the wrongs have been righted. You know what I mean? Like um, everything, like at the end of her first book, you know, the mysterious affair at Styles, like couple, couple, happy, you know, like. Right, yeah, there is a super resolution. You know, like to, you know, like there's definitely like. It's like the captions at the end of, end of a movie where you hear the happily ever after for every character. Right, and so it's like writing wrongs, but instead this is unsatisfying not because you didn't find the murderer but because and there was some couples but it was still like ah you know like yeah and so now his sister's just gonna be alone and like know that her brother killed himself for an unknown reason like i mean she's gonna figure it out but um so it's just sad everything about it is just sad and yeah. yeah so it is kind of interesting to think about was this written when her marriage is falling apart so therefore her work was darker and the other thing is there's really nobody very likable because you know like oh. okay so the woman killed her husband 
like he okay so the husband wasn't great because he was abusive and alcoholic but it's also not great to kill people so like she killed her husband right and then you know the doctor is a blackmailer and the the man that was going to marry the woman who died uh, roger Eckroyd, the one the second murder victim he um he was super stingy with his family and so there was all this money insecurity all around him and his niece who's living with him so like she has to go in his room and sneak money and then like also she and her mother are money grubbing and then you know the stepson is irresponsible like there's no one you actually like right and then the secret wife of the stepson is like pissy um, yeah uh and then and that's the thing is because like again coming off of chimneys where there's so much charm and funniness and like right. sort of like likable characters you just don't like i didn't like anybody right uh, in, well, apparently in the stepson right. was was likable but we don't meet him until the last like few well, and they only told us he's likable but i never experienced his likability right, totally. because at that point he's basically trying you know not to go to jail for murder, so he doesn't have time to be charming right now. Right. right. The only charming person was that secretary, which is why I suspected him. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're too charming. Yeah. So, yeah, that's an interesting thing. And I know that um, it's such a thing now to have a dark story with an anti-hero as your, um, you know, narrator. There's so many things now. Um, yeah, your protagonist and redoing is redoing yeah. Perry Mason. Only it's before he became a lawyer, and he's a, a just a private eye, and it's supposed to be super dark, you know. And I heard a, um, you know, interview about it this morning on the radio, and it was like, we've made Perry Mason, but this time it's super dark, and it's like, okay, I know this is a trend now, like, but we started with like the Dark Knight, right? With right. the Batman one where it's like super dark and your mentor turns out to be the evil one. And now it's like, that was how long ago did that? What, you know, like, it just feels like right. there's such a like trend. You're right. It is very untrend right now. So she was doing a super dark, everything sad. And I don't know. Uh, there's a reason why uh, in the middle of a horrible pandemic and everything feeling kind of hopeless and uh, hopeless about uh, racial justice ever coming. It's like, can we watch some stories where the good guys win? Damn it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's a tough time. It's a tough time to read a melancholy book when you're like, right, this is this is not the escape that I needed. <laughs> right, like, uh, so... Yeah, anyway. I agree. Um, so, you know, but uh, it's also the stories in the 30s and 40s that like Raymond Chandler I don't know if you ever read the noir books that were mostly private detectives that were set in um in Los Angeles Raymond Chandler being the most famous but like the Maltese Falcon and some of those other ones I don't know if you No, I never read any of those. I might now. We got um, time. But... but they are dark and the detective is very tortured himself and mm -hmm. drinks way too much. Um, because, you know, the dame walked into my office and I could tell she was trouble, you know, was yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, I know the genre. Yeah, I know the um, reference. Um, and then, but The Maltese Falcon is one of the best books I ever read. Um, and the movie's really good as well. Um, although it has a, um, well, this is a whole nother thing, veering for a moment. But Fear, do it. It has a gay character in it and, um, in the book itself, um, it's a little bit more explicit about that he's gay, but 
because it was made at a 1940s movie and the laws about uh, portraying gay characters. Well, the, no, the laws about portraying anything like there was a law in Hollywood that if you committed a crime, you couldn't profit but from it by the end of the movie. And adulterers always had to die. You know, like there were movies. There were oh, wow. The original, uh, an example of the never profit from the original Ocean's Eleven. They didn't get to keep the money they stole because you can't have you profit from a crime. Um, and that was made in the early 60s. They changed the rules by the end of the 60s. Um, but in the early 60s, when they made the original Ocean's Eleven, they stole the money successfully and then they lost it at the end of the movie. Because Wow, I did not know that. So in these noir books, they have all these, you know, rules about uh, morals, including about portraying of gay characters. So the movie itself is one of the most interesting negative de depictions of a gay man, but also never saying it. It's fascinating. Mm. Um, anyway, so that it's a, as I said, I really like the book and I really like the movie, but they're different because of the morals clauses. <laughs> um, Wait, is the gay character negative in the book as well? Um, yes, but yes, yes, it is. I mean, cause it's the thirties, forties in LA and you know, it was Ill illegal and regularly, you know, um vilified um interesting uh, so um but it, it's a what they do is dance around it in the movie okay we have to edit out my long pauses um <laughs> great analysis that people have done of movies um and uh, literature from the 20th century and how gay characters are either tortured or insane Oh yeah, this is this is true. Especially yeah, lesbians are always insane in movies. Oh, lesbians are serial killers. Like in the um, from Russia with Love in the the Bond movie, um, the Colonel Kleb is portrayed as a. There's a moment at the very beginning when she's recruiting the beautiful girl, and she strokes her arm. And it's definitely like, ah, she's a lesbian. So therefore she's evil, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> there's a weird, you know, so anyway, um, uh, it, interesting that none, with all of Agatha Christie's talking about men and women. And yeah. Every time I think there's something gay coming, I'm like, yeah, gay. no, it's not gay. <laughs> yeah. She's okay <laughs> with apparently S&M as we discussed in the man in the brown suit. Right. But the brother and sister who are fully grown and lived together. Yeah, that was weird in this one, too. It's like, yeah, because they kept on that his sister was like an older spinster. So he's obviously a dude spinster. Right. And nobody's like, huh. I mean, I guess what's interesting, of course, it was made. And even Miss Marple is a spinster. She never married, right? Yeah. It was more okay to be asexual. Yeah. For sure. Because I think that now it is less okay to be asexual. Um, no, interesting. Than it was in this culture, as they kind of portray it, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, because it's common. Like it's like, yeah, the, the the this it's just as a given that this doctor and his sister right. just live together, and neither of them is, and it's not even a thing. They don't even introduce the fact that neither of them ever married. She, you know, they just refer to her as a spinster once, and like you assume. Right, you're like he's never married either, and it's like it just seems normal to everyone. Right, so. 
isn't that that would be weird like if we knew now like people in like you know let's say if they were in their 50s and 60s or 70s and like brother and sister living together we'd be like what the hell right <laughs> like we would not think that was normal but as we learn more about this spectrum asexual is definitely there um, right and uh so yeah um interesting you make a good point about that culturally that yeah it was much more and even the characters of although he may be implied to be gay to some degree he's never partnered or miss marple's never partnered and so it's like there's very you know a sort of given asexual well oh, that characters is a good point that is an interesting point he keeps at the beginning when he doesn't know the um who Poirot is and he says he's fancy and he's foppish and he has a french accent so therefore he must be a hairdresser. a hairdresser is that code for him thinking that he's gay i mean i thought so yeah um so he doesn't say foppish in this book but he we've read it in other books and so we just take it as a reference to the other books but he does i mean like i don't know if hairdresser meant the same thing in the 20s that it you know people would say you know the current day sort of make that stereotype i don't know but yeah i mean i think it's sort of like an implied well, look at his mustache. Obviously, he's gay. <laughs> right. I mean, they basically say that. Right. Um, yeah. That's kind of how I took it. And then it's interesting because they make a point that Praro, like, compliments women, but it's always in, like, he's pointing them out to the man he's in front of. Like, don't you want to marry her? Isn't right. her hair beautiful? Like, he'll say things, but it's not for himself. He'll be like, oh, British women are beautiful but he's saying it to the man he's basically communicating to the man he's with but he's not objectifying them and i can't remember um because you know but there are times when he's with hastings that he talks about hugging him and hastings like is like dude don't all the time yeah hastings is always like oh but my british sensibilities please don't hug me oh god he forgot he was foreign and he hugged me <laughs> Right, but is that also like just being more okay, you know, like yeah, because Poro never marries and he um so yeah, I wonder if she That in it and it is interesting like for a woman who was married twice and who always has like the happily well, tends to have a happily ever after, you know, matches at the end, but then again her two main protagonists throughout her series of books are both unmarried yeah yeah and maybe it's hard to write that because you're like do i write about the relationship or do i write about you know what i mean but yeah also, but she found them more interesting as characters yeah on but their I own thought about is Poirot gay i thought you told me that it was sort of assumed that he might have been gay i don't think i ever said that like i'm gonna check the tapes I and I said tapes because I'm old. Yeah. Um, I said tapes because um. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> I'm very old. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting because um, there is um, a short story, a couple of short stories where there's a woman mm -hmm. that he admires, but um, I it's not necessarily admires, and I never like go on a date or you know what i mean mm -hmm. so um a matter of fact we first meet her in the big four which is the next book 
Um, ah, okay. Uh, but she pops up a couple other times. Uh, the Russian woman, um, which we'll talk about. Um, uh, anyway, so uh, what admires is different than... Right. Again, and then again, like having jumping ahead to that, but she's sort of a like a evil genius sort of drawn to, right? Like, right. And she's the the evil version of his of of his brilliance. Right, right. Um so yeah, it's an interesting question because um the when we're talking about um sexuality, it is so coded in this language. <clears throat> and as I said, if you read the the noir books um from the hard-boiled detectives that were set in LA, they're not coded in the books. They don't mm. use a coded language. Um, they use, frankly, negative language. You know what I mean? But they're not coded, whereas the British have so much layers of hidden. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting to kind of decode that. Because um, I never thought about it. I never thought about Faro's sexuality one way or another, I think. You know? Yeah. Um, and um, because it wasn't part of it. But the fact that he's not just solving murders, but almost always as a matchmaker, also plays into some stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of the, you know, the gay friend who gets everybody together and makes them all happy. But yeah. always is, you know, the third wheel, but is happy being the third wheel because they just want to see people get together. Right. And, and there is that sort of like, it's fine if you're gay as long as you're not in, right. not in a relationship. Right, right. <laughs> right. As long as you are, you know, yeah, don't have... As long as you're asexually gay, it's fine. Right. That's interesting. Right. And yeah. so, and, but then using it to create these matchmakers and, you know, I uh, just... Now, oh my gosh, now that we're talking about this, um, and that role of an excited gay man who solves everything seen as a hairdresser has a great mustache and makes couples get together now i'm kind of imagining Praro was jonathan from the new queer eye <laughs> but with a french accent you know but with a french accent which i'm sure jonathan would love to do i know right like yeah let's have jonathan play the young Praro. oh my god that would be so fun that would be really good i mean because he's got the best mustache now. Mm-hmm. I mean... I can see it. This totally makes sense. Yep. Yep. Okay, you get a screenplay to write. Right. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. All so right, cool. Well, I think we finished Roger Aykroyd. As did. much as we could enjoy it, we did. We um, you know, sometimes you do need something to feed you into your melancholy, even if you don't want it. So we did that. Right. And, uh, Next time, we have the big four coming up, which is 1927. Man, she just turned them out one a year. Boom, 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 I know, right? boom. I know. It's and this is going to be the one that's published after her divorce and disappearance. So we can also talk about that in that episode, since the big four is kind of boring. <laughs> Spoiler. Well, it's Praro trying to do the spy thing, and it just it's doesn't. It's just cheese balls. Yeah, it's not like with the young people doing the spy thing. It's just, yeah. It's just, yeah. And we get to go back to the anti-Asian racism again. Yeah, they got that. They definitely got that. And, so, 
Yeah. So we'll also spend time on uh, Agatha Christie's um, mysterious disappearance, which was after her husband left her. Yeah. So anyway, well, so that was the murder of Roger Aykroyd with a side um, conversation about whether or not Hikaru Poro was gay as she wrote him. And I guess that's a, you know, an interesting question. So, all right. (laughs) All right. We'll talk to you guys soon. All right. Bye. Bye.